0: Uh, Dr. Bruce Ware grew up in Spokane, Washington. He went to Shadle Park High School. Uh, and Whitworth, any pirates here this morning? Lots of bucks over there. Go Bucks. Okay. Uh, he currently serves as the department chair of theology at the largest seminary in the world, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, a very prestigious position. He's written several outstanding books. He's literally a world-class theologian. And yes, good things can come out of Spokane, Washington. Uh, Most importantly, he is a loving husband and a father. He has two daughters uh, and three grandchildren. How many boys and girls are those grand? Two girls, one boy. Uh, And he's also an active member of his church, Clifton Baptist, in Louisville, Kentucky. So let's welcome Dr. Bruce Ware this morning. Thank you, Dave, so very much. What a joy to be with you, and uh, I enjoyed being with the men this weekend at the men's retreat. That was just really a delight. Got to talk with a lot of them, and uh, uh, just really sensed that the Lord is at work in this church, and that's a wonderful thing. So so happy. I mean, I think of my upbringing here in Spokane, there were not many really solid churches, and uh, so, to see what God has done in recent years in raising up, you know, some some really wonderful churches, you know, honoring the Lord, faithful to His Word, uh, w- willing to take a stand, uh, you know, sharing, sharing the gospel, being a beacon of light is such a good thing, and I'm just grateful and pray for you and pray that the Lord would continue to bless your ministry here. Well, this morning, we're going to take a look at Ephesians chapter 1 that was just read, Chris read to us, and uh, we're going to look at the doctrine of the Trinity here. And when you get a handout, you'll notice there's a on the introduction, I have a question there, and that is, have you learned to read your Bibles through Trinitarian lenses? So, it's kind of like a pair of glasses you put on that helps you notice what I like to call the Trinitarian specificity that there is in the New Testament, some in the Old Testament as well, but clearly in the New Testament, that the authors of the New Testament think in Trinitarian ways. They think in terms of the specific role of Father and Son and Spirit in ways that we can just kind of pass over. I remember what, what happened to me when I first saw this was I was reading Ephesians 1, and the question came to my mind, I wonder who these pronouns refer to, these he, he's and him's and his's, you know, who, who are these referring to? Is that the one God, the one God who is the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit? Well, I looked carefully, and you know what? It wasn't a, re- a reference to the one God. It was rather a reference. These were references to one or another Trinitarian person over and over again. And I just saw that as I began reading through the New Testament, how often the pronouns, divine pronouns, are references to the Father and the Son and the Spirit. So, indeed, we'll see that this morning as we look at Ephesians 1. So, I'd like to walk you through this chapter, or at least the first 14 verses, and think with you about what we can learn about the Trinity. And the the main focus here, of course, is the work of the Father, Son, and Spirit in our salvation. So first, I'm going to focus just on verses one and two to try to outline for you what is might, might be called the contours of the doctrine of the Trinity, kind of a structure for thinking about the doctrine of the Trinity. And then in verses three to fourteen, begin to enumerate the works of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit as Paul unpacks that uh, through these passage through this passage in regard to our salvation. So look with me first at verses 1 and 2. Let me read again, and we'll see a couple things here that are really significant. Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, verse 1 is very interesting. Paul begins the, uh, the, the book of Ephesians in the way that he does a number of his letters, and he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of Christ Jesus? No. He says, by the will of God. Now, I take it this is shorthand for God the Father. Most of the usages of God, the Greek word theos, in the New Testament are references to God the Father, the vast majority of them. There are, I believe it's nine of them that refer to Christ, who is God, like in John 1.1, and then some refer to the one God, but the vast majority of the references to theos, the word God in English, is to the Father. And I think that's the case because you look at verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father. So, I think Paul has in mind the Father in his shorthand use of that when he says that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So, isn't that interesting? He's an apostle of Christ sent to represent Christ, sent to speak the word of Christ, sent to spread the gospel of Christ, to help people grow up in Christ, right? All of that is Christ-centered by the will of Christ, not ultimately, by the will of the Father, the Father who wills that Paul do this work to elevate and magnify the work of Christ. Everywhere he goes to preach the gospel of Christ. So you, you realize there that there's the way Paul thinks of the Father and the Son, there clearly is a distinction. So if you're filling in blanks, there's your word, right? Uh, the, the distinction theme is announced in, in uh, verse 1. The Father is the Father, the Son is the Son. So he's an apostle of Christ, but he's an apostle of Christ by the will of another person, who is the Father himself. You know, another thing that we'll see more of in a moment here, and that is that the Father plays this role as the the one who has designed all that takes place. We'll see this more clearly in just a moment, but even here you see this, that why is Paul an apostle of Christ? Because the Father ultimately designed this to be the case and is carried out then through the ministry of Paul. So, distinction in verse 1, but now look at verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That word and is powerful because you think of it, grace and peace to you from God our Father. Who alone can give grace and peace to people? I can't. You can't. Only God can do this, right? Only God is the bestower of grace and peace. So, grace and peace to you from God our Father, Uh, yes, indeed. And, ah, what does that do? That indicates a kind of equality, right? And the Lord Jesus Christ. So, indeed, Jesus is put at the same level at the Father. So, if you're filling in your blanks here, it's the word equality, the equality theme. So, yes, the Father and Son are distinct from each other, but the Father and Son are equally the one God. So, indeed, in the doctrine of the Trinity, we affirm this, that there are these, you might think of it as two pillars that uphold this giant block doctrine of the Trinity, this massive, weighty, glorious doctrine of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit who are the one God. And one of those pillars that upholds it is the distinction pillar. The Father, Son, and Spirit must be distinct from each other. So, so it's, it's not that those names, Father, Son, and Spirit, are like three names I have I have more than that, but I have at least these three names. I'm Bruce, I'm Mr. Ware, and I'm Jody's husband, right? Well, the thing is, anything you say about Bruce, you would say about Mr. Ware. Anything you'd say about Mr. Ware, you'd say about Jody's husband. So, what would you conclude? Oh, Bruce is Mr. Ware. Mr. Ware is Jody's husband, right? But is that the case with Father, Son, and Spirit? Oh, no. No. There is something, in fact, there are a number of things you say about the Father you should not and cannot rightly say about the Son. Certain things about the Son you you cannot rightly say about the Spirit. So, Father is Father, not Son, not Spirit. Son is Son, not Father, not Spirit. You get the point. So, these are distinct persons. If that's not the case, then we really have not Trinitarian monotheism, but Unitarian monotheism monotheism, as, as in Islam, as in Judaism. What distinguishes Christianity in, in, in this important subject we're talking about is that our view of God is there's one God, but that one God is three. Father, Son, and Spirit are distinct persons of the one God. But the other pillar that has to be in place it must be there also is the equality pillar where Father, Son, and Spirit are equally the one God. Now, listen, there are different ways in which things can be equal. I don't know how much to go into this, uh, but different ways things can be equal. You and I are equal because we, are, we have the same kind of nature. You have a human nature. I have a human nature. We're equal, okay? In the Trinity, though, it's stronger than that. It's not merely that the Father, Son, and Spirit have the same kind of nature. Listen up. The Father, Son, and Spirit possess the one, undivided, identically same nature. There is only one nature of God. That one nature possesses all of the essential attributes of God the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the, the knowledge of God, the wisdom of God, the power of God. All of these essential attributes of God comprise the nature of God that is undividedly possessed fully by the Father, undividedly possessed fully by the Son, possessed fully by the Spirit. So, one nature of God that is expressed with three personal expressions of that one undivided divine nature. So, indeed, the equality is the greatest kind of equality that there is, an equality of identity. They each possess the identically same nature. So, here we have just the way Paul thinks about father and son, you realize he's thinking this way. Yeah, they're distinct from each other, but father and son are equally the one God. So, it's, it's, uh, it's just interesting to see this. And John 1, 1 kind of captures this same idea, right? In the beginning was the Word. Now listen, the Word was with God. Which pillar? Which theme? The Word was with God, distinction, right? And the Word was God, equality, do you see it? Those two themes, those two pillars are absolutely crucial, necessary for upholding the doctrine of the Trinity. Okay, now having kind of that structure in mind, let's take a look at the work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, what Paul says about them in the verses that follow. So, let's begin with the Father. Salvation as the work of the one God who is three, and the Father's work can be summarized, I think, this way. He is the grand architect of salvation, the grand architect, the wise designer, the one who has willed Purposed, put in place everything that has to do with our salvation. Look at verse 3 with me. Notice what Paul says. Blessed be the God and... By the way, I'm reading from the New American Standard translation, which is just slightly different than the ESV, so just go with it, all right? (laughs) Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, I submit to you, Paul could have said basically the same thing in a different way that wouldn't have involved Trinitarian language. He could have said, blessed be God for all the blessings that God has brought to us, right? And that would be true. I mean, we wouldn't blink at that if that's what Paul had written. We would say, yes, praise be to God for all the blessings He's brought to us. Even though that is correct, it's not specific enough for the Apostle Paul, right? So, rather than blessed be God, it's blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Did you see that word, every? So, every blessing we receive in this life and in the life to come, and by the way, There (laughs) there are so many more blessings in the life to come. You know, in Ephesians 2, I won't take you there to that passage, but it's just in the next chapter when he talks about why God saved us so that in the ages to come, he passes over this life completely. It's almost like this life is just a little blip, and then comes eternity. Every spiritual blessing in this life and the life to come comes from the Father ultimately. He's the one who designed, who prepared, who who has, has put in place every blessing we receive in this life and in the life to come. And you know what? Those blessings will never end. There never will come a day when God will say, well, you'll notice that the storehouse of blessings is now empty. We kind of have run out of everything. It will never happen. No supply chain shortages, you know? I mean, it's just, it it, will be full forever and ever. So, the Father is the one who has designed the blessings that we receive. And notice as you work through this, that Paul enumerates a number of those blessings and every one of them come from the Father. Look at verse four. Just as He chose us in Him pronouns, divine pronouns, Pay attention. Just as he, who's the he? It's got to be the Father. Why? Well, look, it flows right out of verse three. He's blessed us, the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. But then in verse four, he chose us in him. Who's the in him? In Christ, right? So he, the Father, chose us in Christ. Uh, to be his own people, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Verse 5, in love he, who's the he? It's the Father, predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Do you see it? So, indeed, it's the Father who does these things. So, you just realize Paul is enumerating, out of verse 3, these blessings that the Father has brought to us that, that involve our life now and our life forever in heaven that He has willed that come to pass. Here's another indicator of, God, of the Father as the grand architect of all things. The will of the Father is mentioned four times in these opening verses, in verses 1 to 14, in verses 1, 5, 9, and 11, the will of the Father. Look at verse 9 with me, just to, just to see. We already looked at verse 1, didn't we, by the will of the Father, by the will of God. He's an apostle of Christ. But look at verse 9. I actually have to start in verse 8 to get the full thought. So at the end of verse 8, in all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention, which he purposed, who is that? Who is that? The he's and the hymns there. Which he purposed in him, in Christ. So who is this referring to? This is the Father, right? So let me read it again making clear that it's the Father. In all wisdom wisdom and insight, He the Father made known to us the mystery of His, the Father's will, according to His, the Father's kind intention, which He the Father purposed in Him. Do you hear those words? Will, purpose, intention? From whom? From the Father. So, the Father is the grand architect, the wise designer of all that takes place in our salvation. Now, moving on to the Son, what the Father designed is that everything that He has planned for us, everything that He has architecturally designed for us, can only be realized through the work of His Son. So, go back to verse 3 again. Notice this with me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, in Christ. So, indeed, every blessing designed by the Father, but all those blessings secured for us through the ministry of the Son. He's the one who accomplished the work. So, the, the glorious accomplishment of salvation is through the work of the Son. And you realize this, this is why the Father sent the Son, right? And why the Son did the will of His Father. It's, I, I came not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me, Jesus said, because that, salva- that saving work that accomplished everything that the Father has to give to us could only happen through the work of His Son, So, the Son, then, is the glorious accomplishment of our salvation. Now, in our chapter, besides the brief reference there in verse 3, the focus of it comes in verse 7. So, look there with me. He had just said at the end of verse 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace, that's the Father's grace, which He, the Father, freely bestowed on us in His beloved Son, is what I'm confident he means by that word beloved, the beloved son of his, in him, verse 7, that is, in that beloved son, look at what he says, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he has lavished upon us. So, it's a shorthand summary, isn't it, of the cross of Christ. Paul talks about the cross elsewhere in a number of other ways that that end up being, as it were, sort of facets of a diamond, different ways, different elements of the cross of Christ. The heart of it, of course, is His redeeming work in which He pays the penalty we deserve to pay. Now the word redemption in whom we have in, in Christ we have redemption through his blood. The word redemption means to purchase out of the marketplace, right? I mean that's how it's literally used in Greek. The Greek word for the marketplace is agora and to redeem is agorazo, right? So you purchase from the market, the agora, you purchase from there. So the the idea here is that Christ by his death on the cross, by his shed blood, purchased us from our sin and slavery and from the dominion of Satan that he held over us. And, you know, we were held captive to Satan to do his will. Paul says that in 2 Timothy 2.26. He says to Timothy, be patient with those who oppose you because, you know, they, they don't realize what they're doing. what is it they're doing? He said that God may grant them repentance. They may escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. In Acts 26, when Christ commissions Paul to go to the Gentiles, he says, go to the Gentiles to open their eyes so they turn from darkness to light from the dominion of Satan to God. So here we realize we are bound in our own sin. We are slaves to Satan. We have no escape from either of these horrible realities that are ours. We need a redeemer. We need someone to pay the price necessary to free us from the clutches of our own sin, to free us from the clutches of Satan. Apart from his redeeming work, we have no hope. It's through the shed blood of Christ. Now, let, let me just help you with something. I think a lot of people when they think about Christ and His shed blood on the cross wonder, why didn't the Old Testament sacrificial system suffice? You know, I mean, goodness, there was shed blood there too, right? A lamb was killed or, a, or another animal of some kind was killed and, and, and forgiveness of sin was offered. Why, why wouldn't that suffice? Well, Hebrews gives a number of answers, but here's the main answer. It's in Hebrews 10 verse 4. It says this, the blood of of bulls and goats, listening, cannot take away sin. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. Do you realize that in all those sacrifices that were offered in the Old Testament, not a one of them in and of itself, was effective to deal with the sin of those who brought the sacrifices to the priest to be offered on the altar. They did nothing in and of themselves. So, how could God announce forgiveness if they did nothing? Ah, because they were connected, linked in the mind of God to Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you see it? They were all linked to a coming sacrifice that really would pay for sin. (coughs) I use the analogy here. It's not a perfect one, but I think it helps. I use the analogy here of paying for something. Do you see my scare quotes? Paying for something with a credit card. You know, you, you, go, you go into Target, you find a shirt you like, you know, and so you take it up to the counter and, and put your card out, and, and you can walk out of the store, and the security guard will not stop you for stealing, even though how much have you actually paid for that shirt that you're taking out of the store? Be honest now, how much have you paid? Nothing. Zero. Right? Your bank balance is just the same. You have every penny in your wallet you had before. So, how, how come you can take it out of the store without being charged for stealing? Answer? Because you sign. I mean, it used to be you signed the slip, you know, years back. But there's, you know, a way in which you have agreed to a future payment On the basis of which, they will let you take the item of clothing now because of a payment you will make, you are pledged to make, right? So, here's the idea. Every Old Testament sacrifice offered was forgiven, the the sins were forgiven on credit, right? Someone signed signed the credit card slip that promised a future payment. Who is that who signed the credit card slip every time? that said your forgiveness now is based on a future payment. It's the father. The father signed that credit card slip and he then sent his son, you remember the words in Romans chapter three, to display his righteousness at the present time because he passed over the sins previously committed in order to demonstrate his righteousness now in Christ Jesus, that he might be both just, ah, sins are now forgiven in Christ. They weren't before, but now they are, that he might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. So indeed, Christ is that agent of redemption, the one sent by the Father, the only one who can pay the penalty of our sin, the only one who can free us from the clutches of our own slavery to sin, the only one who can rip apart Satan's dominion over us. Have you trusted in Christ? Are there some of you here this morning who have never put your faith in Christ? You need to know something, if you stand as an unbeliever outside of Christ, you stand slave to your own sin, and you can not rid yourself of it. Slave to Satan, and you cannot withstand his hold over you. Your only hope is to humble yourself, confess your sin, trust in Christ, And He will free you because of His shed blood on the cross that made the payment for you in His love. Trust Him. Come to Him today if you've never trusted Him before. Okay, the work of the Father, the grand architect, the work of the Son, the glorious accomplishment of salvation. Now, the gracious application of the Spirit we see also in this passage. Now, go back to verse three again. I think verse three is a fully Trinitarian verse. Let me try to explain this. Verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, the Father designed all these blessings. We know at the end of the verse, they all come to us in Christ, but look what's in the middle there. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Now, that's a very interesting phrase. What do you think Paul means by that? Spiritual blessing. Now, one idea is that these are spiritual blessings as opposed to physical, material blessings, right? You know? But, and, and that's a possibility. I, I admit it. But I don't think that's the way Paul is thinking. That, that's more Platonic, more Gnostic than it is Christian way of thinking. I mean, what's the very first thing we are to ask of the Lord in the Lord's Prayer, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven, give us this day our… Pretty physical, huh? Pretty material. Where does it come from? God, the Father, right? So, I, I don't think that Paul is distinct distinguishing material from spiritual. I think, more likely, what Paul, when he says every spiritual blessing, it's every blessing designed by the Father, accomplished by the Son mediated to us by the Spirit. So, the Spirit takes the accomplished work of Christ and applies it to our lives. So, again, the gracious application of salvation comes through the Spirit. So, I believe that is in verse 3, but then, again, the focus in these opening verses of Ephesians on the Spirit comes in verses 13 and 14. So, look there with me. Verse 13, in Christ, you, you, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him, in Christ, with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. So, two things are mentioned here of the work of the Spirit. The first one, in verse 13, is that He seals us in Christ. I mean, to be in Christ is everything. To be in Christ is to realize you are adopted, to realize that you are part of the inheritance of Christ. To be in Christ is, is really your new identity, who you are as a new creation, a new person in Christ. Everything you receive, you receive because you are in Christ. So the Spirit is the one who seals you in Christ. And because the Spirit is God, God the Holy Spirit, and He's omnipotent, do you think anybody's going to be able to break that seal? Anybody going to be able to take people out of Christ who the Spirit has sealed in Christ? Oh, no. This argues for eternal security, doesn't it? It argues for the view that those who are truly saved are held on by God forever, I think that's the best way to think of eternal security. It it doesn't have ultimately to do with us, although we are to persevere in the faith. There's no question about that. But how do we persevere? By God's persevering in holding us. We hold on to Him because He holds on to us. And His hold will never give up, never give up. His seal will never be broken. He seals us into Christ. So that's the first thing. And then verse 14 We read that the Spirit is given to us, so He seals us into Christ, but He's also given to us as a pledge or a token or a guarantee of the inheritance that we have in Christ. So, this is the God's, the Father's guarantee to us that you receive everything that Christ has purchased for you all of it, the inheritance. Paul mentions the inheritance three times in Ephesians 1, in in verses 11, 14, and 18, three times. This is a big deal, the inheritance. It's all the riches of Christ. It's so that in the ages to come, He might show us His lavish grace that He's bestowing on us in Christ. That's the inheritance. So, indeed, the Spirit not only puts us into Christ, the Spirit is given to us as God's pledge, His guarantee, His, His promise that we will be His forever, and we will enter into the fullness of what Christ has purchased for us. God doesn't go back on His Word. It's His guarantee. You know, I think the closest analogy we have in human experience is an engagement ring, that a young man gives to a young woman and uh, you know pledging future goodness that will come f- f- future care and comfort and provision that he will provide for her Be, and this is the pledge of that now <clears throat> we all know that we human beings including a lot of men who make that promise at the beginning can break it right yeah we we can because that's us but this is god You catch the difference here. This is God who never goes back on his word, who is always faithful, always a promise keeper. And he gives us the spirit in part, as a token of his promise, you will receive the inheritance. So my friends, such security, such hope, nothing can take this away from you if you are genuinely in Christ. Now, there's, again, just as with the atonement, there's much more Paul could have said than what he said in verse 7. Likewise here, much more about the work of the Spirit, I'd love to go into, that Paul says elsewhere about the work of the Spirit than he does in verses 13 and 14. But his focus here is on those elements that are glorious. So, the Spirit brings us into the fullness of what has been accomplished in Christ that the Father designed from eternity past, (laughs) the grand architect, the Father, the accomplishment of salvation in the glory of the cross, the Son, applied to us through the work of the Spirit. That's the work of the Trinity in our salvation. Now, real quickly, just a few points of application. The first one uh, begins with the word marvel. Don't you think that's an appropriate response to what we have just seen? Isn't this astonishing? I mean, doesn't your heart just warm and isn't it lifted and and doesn't it rejoice over this news of a saving God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, of His love for us, of His commitment to us, of the, the, the work that Christ did to bring this to pass. Don't miss marveling, my friends, Oh, it's so important in the Christian life, yes, to know it, but for your affections to say, wow, this is incredible. So, my first point of application is marvel at the beauty of the triune God and the salvation that He has accomplished. Secondly, consider the work of the Trinitarian persons as one of rich harmony, not simple unison. What is unison? When we all sing the same line of notes, the melody line, right? That's unison. Have you ever heard a trio? I mean, I'm thinking Trinity here, right? Have you ever heard a trio who begins singing unison and then breaks into parts? Ooh, wow! You know, you can hear it, can't you? You know, you have the you have those supporting lines that enhance the melody line. You don't lose the melody line. You, you have an enhanced melody line, right? So, so that, think, think of the work of the Trinity as one of rich harmony, not simple unison, one in which there is unity of work without sameness and diversity of roles without discord. What's discord? I'm thinking musically again. I'll give you a perfect illustration. Discord, musically, three three-year-olds sitting on the same piano bench, you can't beat that, can you? I mean, yeah, you, you hear it. So here here is the unity of the Trinity is, is one of common purpose, common goal, doing working the one work of God, carrying out the one will of God. There's no distinction. The, boy, the Trinitarian persons are not independent agents. They're not out there doing their own thing. They're all working together toward one end, toward one purpose but contributed in their distinctive ways to bring that to pass. Don't you think families would be helped if they followed this model of harmony? Common purpose, common goal, this is where we're heading, this is what we believe, this is who we are, and yet diversity. So the kids and the mom and the dad with their different gifts and different aptitudes and different you know, likes and dislikes can, can contribute, but always in ways that fit within the commonality of that purpose, of those convictions, of those goals. What about a church? Same thing, right? Gifts in the body of Christ vary, but boy, we work together toward one common goal of building one another up in Christ you realize the harmony of the Trinity should be reflected in harmony in our Christian relationships, family, church, and in other ways as well. Then last, third... Understand the intrinsic authority, submission structure within the relations of the the Trinitarian persons themselves and embrace the relevance of this to human life made in God's image where authority and submission in relationships of husbands and wives, church leadership and church members are a reflection then of, can you believe it? The Trinity itself, where Father's always Father, Son is always Son. They don't trade at some point, hey, I'm gonna be Father for a while, uh uh-uh. uh. No, the Father's eternal Father, Son is eternal Son, Spirit is eternal Spirit. And this role relationship within the Trinity then is reflected in how God wants us to live with each other, including areas of authority and submission. So, you know, one, one lesson for, uh, for, uh, from this that is so helpful to us. Submission, then, is dignified. Do you realize the Son always submits to the Father? And there's no sense of belittling in that. There's no dishonor in that. It is my food to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work, Jesus says in John 4, 34. So, indeed, there's a dignity in submission, and there should be a consideration of the best of others in the exercise of authority. That's how God does it. Consideration of what is best for others in the exercise of authority. So you realize, boy, authority and submission then take on a whole new light when you realize the Trinity is the prototype, right? It's where you see it lived out perfectly. May God help us in our relationships to model more of what we see in the Trinity. What a glorious God. What a privilege to know the one true God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, thank you.